This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. The Bolga Battlers have held out against Rio Tinto and now a Chinese company called Yan Coal. Listeners to Beyond Zero Emissions will have heard me interviewing them over the years as they won a Supreme Court case to stop the coal mine and then see the decision reversed by new laws. The last time they were on our show was when they were out on a road collecting signatures from people. It was called Wallaby Scrub Road. The road was in the way of a ravenous coal mine and the council was going to sell it. You'd think the Bulgar battlers would be bitter, but when I visited Bulgar again this year in February, they were united and resolute. Though, sick at heart, as you'll hear from Wanarua woman Pat Hansen, who speaks first. Thank you everyone for coming here today to support this area. Um, I just scribbled this down last night. It's how I personally feel. And I'll start off by saying great spirit. What we are experiencing in this area is very confronting, heartbreaking, spiritually hard to deal with. It's like a sickness. It's there in the morning when you, and when you go to bed. You even have it while you're sleeping. It never leaves. I believe I have spirit sickness. Our once beautiful country, as we were growing up and into our family life, has been destroyed by coal mining. It's real. It's there for everyone to see. But only the ones that want to see it can see it. Sadly, most don't. Just can't see it, don't care, doesn't register. Then there are the ones that can see it, but are sitting and doing nothing. To us, that is not an option. We must try to save what's left of our, uh, what our family have nurtured for all these years. It's hard very hard, everything against you. Being arrested for what I believe is everyone's right in Australia to have, a clean, to have clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, untouched spirit. And so we will continue to voice our opinion until the day we go to rest. Thank you. Thank you. 
people working in the mine are reluctant to speak. They can earn over $120,000 a year driving those big trucks down in the pit. So I spoke to an ex-miner with a big white Ned Kelly beard. His name is Frank Turnbull. Frank, just fill us in a little bit how it's affecting you and what's happening. Yes, well, um, over the uh, last couple of years, uh, the the battle has, has been going on. Um, Rio Tinto, when they owned it, got approval to for the mine extension, and part of the condition for that mine extension was uh, to enable them to, um, uh, to move much, much closer to the village. Um, one of the conditions was that they um, uh, would need to buy out or, or if residents chose to sell, uh, there'd be uh, some people in the village that could opt to sell out. Now, that is having a huge social impact on the, the whole community because people that had lived here for years and years have now chosen to sell out because of the threat of the mine and the increased dust, the increased noise, just um, you know, upsetting the, the, envi- the visual aspect mm-hmm. of it all. So these people have chosen to... Um, sell up and I don't blame them for selling up Well long term the future for coal doesn't look good either so are you in contact with uh, people who are still working in the mine what's their feeling about it? Um, Yeah my experience with with people in the mining industry is that they've got a a fairly selfish attitude part of the reason that they're in the industry is because they can earn lots of big dollars, lots of money um, and um, they, they see the village of Bulga as, as simply collateral damage you know, if, if families are upset or, or um, uh, the community falls um, we've seen it in other communities in the district Walkworth, Campbellwell um, uh, and it's really really sad um, um, uh, Ravensworth, another village that, that's disappeared um, yeah miners tend to and interestingly, there's only about um, 30% of the workforce at the mine itself lives in the, the local area. So two-thirds of them, um, they're divorced from local politics or, or impacts locally yeah. because um, they don't live in the area. They, they commute. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, their attitude is, is we're just a mob of whingers and get out of our way. Yeah. Uh, it's their opportunity to make big dollars. Why have a feeling this town that's become sort of so famous in a certain circle, it should be the line in the sand where, you know, that saddle ridge should be your line where, where no more expansions happen. I hope we can come back in a few more years and find you still here. Do you reckon, is that why you all stay here, you feel that too? Oh, I'm definitely in for the long haul. I mean, it will, it, I have said to a number of people, the, the, uh, I will leave, I uh, will sell out, I'm in the acquisition zone, I will sell out if it looks as though we're going to head down the path of, of Walkworth, Campbellwell, um, uh, Ravensworth, because I don't want to live in a, a ghost town. But having said that, I'll be uh, staying as long as I uh, practically can. I'm born and bred here. My parents are in the local cemetery. And, you know, it, it's a beautiful spot. The, you know, the mountain backdrop, the creek just here. It's, 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 it's home. It's, it, if nothing else, it is home. And, um, um, uh, yeah, uh, it, I'm in for the long haul. Um, and, and I'm 
extremely grateful for the, the help and support that we get from people from outside the area. Um, there, there are a lot of people putting in a lot of time and effort supporting us. If we were left to our own devices and, and you know had to fight the whole thing ourselves, we... we we really would collapse and, it, and it's really uplifting and inspiring and, and, it, and it helps us to uh, carry on the, you know, the fact that we have people that are genuinely interested in, in the plight of, of little people because that's all we are. Um, you know, we haven't got the resources, the money. The... So thank you very much. That's Frank who's a resident and citizen of Bolga. For a local leader who's across all the detail in this David and Goliath struggle, Here's someone who has studied Goliath's every move, and he is not daunted. John Cray. The government gave them approval. We took them to the Lands and Environment Court, and we had the Chief Justice of the Lands and Environment Court heard for 14 days the merits and demerits of the case. At the end of that, he came down and said, the impacts of this mine are too big. It must not proceed. The mining company, and then joined by the state government, took us to court. The little 400 residents of Bolga were hauled off to the Supreme Court for another three days hearing. Well, the Supreme Court came down and said, we absolutely support the Land and Environment Court, and knocked Rio Tinto and the government out of the tree. So that was a great effort, and we felt fantastic. But there... The mining company then workshop with the government. This is all in the government records. Workshop with the government ways to get around that approval. What happened then? They set about systematically over a period of two years changing all the rules. So much so that last, oh, sorry, now a year before last, that mine extension was approved. And the mine that was approved was exactly the same one as the court knocked back. The courts have said this is too big an impact. But the government said, well, we're now making it such that an impact is no longer an impact. You can destroy the Walkworth Sand woodland, which is two or 3,000 years old, can't be reproduced, it's, it's growing in Aeolian sands. And the mining company said, don't worry about that, we, we will reproduce it. They haven't been able to reproduce it. They cannot reproduce it. The government gave the authority then for them to basically wipe it out. All through this, and one of, the, one of the downsides of all this, coming out of our success, was the fact that the government then took away the merits appeal. The right of a community to appeal against a, an extension of a mine, or any, a new mine, based on the merits of their case. The government said, we're not going to have this. This is stopping major production. This is for the greater good of Australia. We need to mine coal. We need to have more royalties. When the government approved this mine, we had one last area that we could stop them, and that was a road called Wallaby Scrub Road, which cut right across the mine. Now, that Wallaby Scrub Road had the council's support to keep it open, and they voted six times unanimously to keep that road open. Just before Christmas, they reversed all that. They voted to close the road. And they will not tell us why. If they were absolutely honest, they will tell us why they changed the vote. They will not. And we can't understand why councils uh, don't take a stronger stand for the health of the kids in this valley. Because that air pollution is killing them. There was a local GP who did some research four, four or five years ago who said the average in Australia for, for asthma and stuff is one in 20. Here, the kids are one in six. 
Now that is asthma for these kids, and it's a disgrace. So this is how bad the authorities are. At Singleton Council, back in November, they acknowledged the traditional owners and how important it was, their land. And within 10 minutes, they passed a motion that destroyed all of Kevin's land. And that's disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful. We heard also from Aboriginal resident Kevin Taggart about what a violation it would be if the mine digs up land that has been a meeting place and sacred to the Wanarua for many, many centuries. And then I spoke to local historian Stuart Mitchell to tell us about the convict era and the traces of colonial history that can be found on the Wallaby Scrub Road. It's our heritage and we need to remember the people who have passed before us and this road holds all of that memory there. If it's dug up for coal, there is no way to offset that or the sacred grounds and bora rings of the Wanarua. I'm at Bolga with the local historian Stuart Mitchell who's been a great help to me in the past explaining about the Bora rings and the wonderful history that this town represents. It's sort of at a crossroads for a lot of people but the local Bolga people have been very disappointed at one of their efforts to stop a road being retained by the council. It's called Wallaby Scrub Road and they wanted the council to preserve this historic path but now the council have sold it off. Is that right Stuart? Just tell us the heritage of that road and what you and then read to the listeners your letter to the minister. Yeah thanks Vivian. Um, I want to talk about Wallaby Scrub Road which forms part of the original Great North Road constructed in 1830 with convict labour um, and it was, uh, it was surveyed by the Surveyor-General Sir Thomas Mitchell at that time. Now, um, that road is considered to be the greatest uh, civil construction uh, project undertaken with convict labour ever in Australia and as such has been declared uh, of uh, national significance. Um, at the moment, it is uh, under consideration to have that road sold. It belongs to the local council, that section of the Great North Road. They're considering the sale of that to the to a neighbouring mining company so that they can dig through that section of road and destroy the continuity of the Great North Road, which runs precisely 240 kilometres from Sydney right through to uh, walk within the Hunter Valley. Okay. Well, uh, the listeners, if you would like to protest about this, uh, people in New South Wales are writing to the Honourable Paul Toole, who's Minister for Lands and Forestry. And this is just the letter that Stuart's going to read you, just a very brief letter. Uh, a letter to the Honourable Paul, Paul Toole MP. Uh, dear Mr Toole, reference Wallaby Scrub Road. As a recent visitor to the historic village of Bulger in the Hunter Valley, I was very concerned to hear that Singleton Council applied to your department on the 18th December 2017 to close the Heritage Wallaby Scrub Road at Bulger through to Walkworth. I'm writing to you to record my strongest objection to the closure of this important public road and ask that you and your department decide to keep Wallaby Scrub Road open for the use of the public. And all of the people now too seem to have signed this letter. So I hope you listeners will take this in and maybe uh, protest to the uh, Minister for Lands and Forests for New South Wales. Lastly, we'll hear from Steve Phillips. 
He was one of the main people to organise this Lock the Gates tour to the Hunter Valley and I think he took us to the people who he admires most. I first met Steve at Newcastle where he met quite a few years ago now, had locked himself on with a group called Rising Tide to the coal loader at Newcastle. Now this is the biggest coal exporting port in the world and Steve and his group just must have got sick of it. There were young people then and they just couldn't stand it any longer that no one should oppose this export of coal in Australia adding to climate change. And I went several times to Newcastle. The court case went on, but eventually they won uh, or they were let off and the magistrate said that she felt that they had a good a point, a political point to make that involved climate change and that she couldn't see that the coal loader had really been inconvenienced to any great extent. So that was a win and I think it must have marked him. But in this little speech he gave at Bulga, you could hear the pain in his voice, the sadness, because there's a lot of grieving to be done. As he said, a lot has been lost. There are towns right now being turned into ghost towns as the price of coal has gone up and people are who had their uh, minds in mothballs are now starting to excavate again. And it's really dire. In the Hunter Valley, it's not just Adani in Queensland, it's the expansion of mines in New South Wales that we need to be conscious of and through that consciousness to oppose them because they are exporting climate change. So here's Steve Phillips. As Kevin said, it feels pretty hopeless when you're fighting the coal industry in the Hunter Valley and the people of Bulga know that better than most do. Um, but we, we are at a point now where, where the world is actually quite rapidly moving away from thermal coal. The, the medium term future for the, for the global thermal coal industry is actually quite bleak. In many countries of the world, renewable energy is now cheaper than coal. By 2021, that will be a global, a global thing. Renewables will be cheaper than coal globally by 2021. Uh, and the Hunter coal industry is entirely export focused and entirely thermal coal focused, that's power stations. So when the world moves away from thermal coal, and many experts think that's going to happen very rapidly in the next 10, 15 years, uh, the, Hunter the, the Hunter Valley is going to change rapidly. Lock the Gate and others are trying to get our governments and decision makers thinking about this now so that we're ready, so that we've got new jobs new industries and that we don't just get left behind with 30 massive holes in the ground for us to deal with while the companies have gone back home with the cash. But So there's definitely a lot of work to do and, it's, and there's a lot of grieving that needs to be done, you know. For, um, for, people, for people like Kevin and Pat, for communities like Bulga, a lot's been lost. But there is hope. I just wanted to finish on that. And our job is to, is to drive that change as fast as possible, save whatever we can, what's left, uh, because the coal industry is going. It's only a matter of when, and we just need to, to keep them out of as many places as we can in the meantime. And that's what we'll keep working to do. Thanks everyone. So, listeners, it's a cliffhanger for Bulga. I don't know how it will turn out, but I'll certainly keep in touch with those brave people. 
There will be a mass rally in Sydney on the 24th of March and you can sign a people's referendum to map out a new path away from farmland being ripped up for coal and gas. Climate action is not just in stopping Adani, you know. These people need your support too. The website is called timetochoose.org.au and that's time and the number two, timetochoose.org.au or you can go to Lock the Gate Alliance. Now to finish, just so you know that miraculous victories do happen, here's a small part of an interview I did with Mrs Patricia Duddy from the Liverpool Plains in New South Wales. They had a massive win against BHP Billiton and I first met them when they were sitting out on their property. All the neighbours were sitting outside Mrs Duddy's place with uh, all their trucks and cars all lined up and big logs there and you couldn't get onto the place and they were trying to stop BHP Billiton and they won. So here's Mrs. Duddy. Because we had a lot of people who understood the activities of the Liverpool Plain and its geography and what was at stake, and had also, by reason of Tony Wings at the time being our representative, they were very forthright in their belief in what we were doing. People just had friends who took it on board, and it spread all up and down the eastern seaboard. We had people arriving with food, thinking that we were there day and night. Mm. We arrived at seven, we left at five, because they were the times Mm. that the mining company anticipated accessing. We had letters from all over the world. You you know yourself, you saw strange Mm. things on our billboards that people had sent. We had, and I think when the uh, people like yourself, reporters, we had four corners, we had people internationally, German papers, French papers, All those people came to interview and ask what we were doing, why we were doing it, and how we felt about it. Yeah. It was a wonderful victory when finally the new state government decided to withdraw the mining licence. But I'm still worried now about other places, and climate action is the focus of this show. And I think there's a lot of drawdown, you know, of greenhouse gases to be done on the land as well as stopping the expansion of coal on and gas on farmlands. But back then people said, oh, it's the wrong mine in the wrong place, as if a new coal mine would be okay somewhere else. But what is your thinking now in view of climate well, I change? I think as people have moved on, Viv, and have yes. realised the responsibilities regarding climate change, but we still have a significant exploration licence and a, a mining company in the tune to the name of Chenois, oh, yes. just five miles across the plain from where you were, yeah. who are, and still are, anticipating at some stage uh, a very significant open-cut mine. The relief to know that BHP had gone was enormous, Viv. Yes. But there is still this spectre of a huge mine anticipated, just a, a matter of a stone throw, from where BHP had anticipated their underground mine. Mm. Well, the state government bought back that licence for $220 million 
from BHP Billiton, and I believe they bought back part of the licence from Shenhua for $262 million. And that financial analyst, uh, Tim Buckley, who everyone knows on this radio programme, we interview him quite a bit, he said, well, this was an expensive gift, and they didn't need to compensate the mines once they decided not to allow the mining licence. So what do you think about this? You know, the government's feeling so frightened of the mines or wanting to please them so much that they pay back. Well, the fact that the Karuta Coal Action Group is still working very hard to draw attention to the anomalies gives you some idea of how the community feels about this development. The conversation has moved on enormously in terms of uh, health issues, water issues, transport issues. The, 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 the concern has just broadened enormously from where we started the original discussion on the Liverpool Plains in 2005. That's wonderful. I'm really, really heartened to hear that because uh, it was a very big thing locally and you would be quite entitled to just go home and rest on your laurels. But I think, as you see, in especially in New South Wales, there's such a threat to farmland. I was up in the Hunter Valley last weekend and I went to the Bylong Valley with a group of people who were just on a listening tour. And Bylong Valley, not one... Uh, shovel full of coal has been dug yet but the company, Korean Energy Company owns practically all the houses there including Tarwan Park and you know they want to mine that beautiful valley it's very good farmland you know, horse studs there and cattle I don't know, it just seems I was reading about Judith Wright and how they stopped oil drilling on the Barrier Reef and Judith Wright said it would be like destroying the Taj Mahal to make road gravel and I think destroying the Bylong Valley to dig up for coal would be similar to that. And I, they're pretty alone there, though. Most of them have been bought out. So I wonder what can be done for these lone areas where they don't have a you know, community left, like in your, your well, place. Well, I think you'll find, because the younger people have taken this on board, and we could not have undertaken that blockade, most of us had younger family members who continued to run the farms while other family members went off and fought the political fight mm. and other folk sat at the blockade. And I think by the time it had finished, we had something like 3,000 signatures because they organised that blockade almost like an army campaign. Yes. You would come for two hours and then you would be replaced by somebody else. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm. It was extraordinary. And that was the younger people we sat and they organised. It was just extraordinary because appreciate too, it got into the federal arena in terms of the work that um, so many of the people, Tony Windsor included and the young ones, had went back to do something regarding the water legislation. Mm. You know, there were significant changes in all sorts of legislation as a result and an outcome. So looking back, what would you say your community achieved? That legislation is one, that water trigger legislation is one, but what else would you say? Tremendous cohesiveness, a great sense of community. It was just extraordinary how they almost to a man rose to this particular situation because this is a very sophisticated agricultural area there and people are prepared to put their money where their mouth is and they work hard to make it happen. And I'm just grateful to you that you've told your story because it's 
an archival story. Now you've won that battle, but as you said, Shenhua is still there, um, partially capable of uh, drilling and and in these other valleys. So I just wanted to hearten people to know that by that kind of community, just absolutely huge amount of persistence, you did. Thanks for listening. This has been about saving a town called Bolga. The brave people there had won a victory against Rio Tinto, and then the law was changed. Then, in order to sell their mine, Rio Tinto needed a local government agreement to sell Wallaby Creek Road, which was built by convicts and has great heritage significance as part of the Great Northern Road. Singleton Council then voted to sell the road, and Rio Tinto sold the mine to the Chinese company Yan Coal. So the state of play is it's a cliffhanger. We heard from Wanarua elder Pat Hansen how sick at heart the people feel, and yet they are standing firm. I don't think this story is over yet, and that's why I've brought you their brave voices. Just remember, climate action is not just stopping at Arnie. These people in New South Wales need your support too. The website for uh, something you can sign up to is called timetochoose.org.au and that's time plus the number two, timetochoose.org.au or you can go to Lock the Gate Alliance and see how you can help there. Please remember this story, Bulger. I think it should be famous. This has been a special program from Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Vivian Langford. Thank you to the people of Bulger and also to Mrs Duddy in the Liverpool Plains. Thanks also to Lock the Gates Alliance who sponsored the trip, bus trip up to the Hunter Valley. Now let's go out with a lovely piece of music by Kristen Rule. Wendy Bowman had a dairy property with her late husband until the dust and noise and disruption from the nearby coal mine made their business untenable. She, Bev Bev Smiles and others formed a group called Mine Watch to help people become informed and united against the coal mines whose usual habit was to pick off one farmer after another and prevent resistance. As soon as they signed up someone, they'd impose a gag clause so no one could talk about the de- the details of an arrangement they might have made with the mine. Mine Watch helped people become more informed and more confident and more unified. For her work on behalf of others and her lone battle at Camberwell, New South Wales, to stop a mine, she received the Goldman International Prize for Environmental Protection. Here's Wendy Bowman. This mining, open cut mining site, there have always been small mines up here for over a hundred years, but they were all little underground mines with somebody with a bucket and a spade and a pick, you know. Um, when the open cut mines starting, that, that, that was when the problem started because it was, it was just like an avalanche, or, or as the Aboriginals called the invasion. We were invaded by mines everywhere, and they were nearly all overseas companies that came in. And when they'd come in and they'd, they'd, um, they all had to come to you and, and drill your land, if they were given, you, you were in the lease, if you were, they were given, they'd come in, they were so rude. They would just come in and say, here, sign this. And you'd say, what is it? Oh, well, we're going to drill. Well, what are you going to drill for? I mean, you knew that, but you just annoy them. Um, <laughs> oh, well, coal and water. I see. Okay, then, well, 
uh, whereabouts are you going to do it? Oh, well, we'll do it down on the flats, sir. And I said, no, you're not going to do that on the flats. These are where we, we grow all the feed. If you're going to drill anywhere, you will drill where I tell you can go, not where you want to go. Oh, well, you can't do that. And I said, well, watch it. <laughs> so then uh, I, we, we had a big meeting uh, on Ashton, the next door property, which is an underground mine now. That was our old property where we had uh, one stage there were five dairies. And before my husband died, he'd put them all into one because the, the high, one of the dairies went each side of the highway. And, and when the, the, the Liddell power station was being built, the traffic just went mad for the first time ever and you couldn't put the cows you know back across twice a day and so so we still had this one big big dairy to try and deal with and all of a sudden there was to be this big mine right next door to us no no area between just right on our fence line or well, when when they got the mine going and in those days the blasts were so enormous that they it was what you would see would be this great big orange thing in the sky which was all the clay and they'd do enormous blasts and all that clay would come and, and fall down all over you and of course if you had a windy day it would take it into town even but it would fall on you it would fall on the on your roof where you collect your drinking water from that would wash into the tanks uh, and, and it would fall on all, all the grazing areas where you put the cattle and, and, and the dairyman would put his cows out after milking and they'd walk back out again because they would not eat it. And and then at night the dairyman couldn't sleep because of the beep, 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 beep when they were, the trucks were backing in to be, have you know stuff dumped into them. Uh, if dairy cows walk too much, they don't make much milk. So the dairyman just came to me one day and said, look, we're working twice as hard we're getting half the milk. He said, we just can't manage it. And he said, we can't sleep at night. So we went um, and spoke to, I think it was Peabody's by that stage. And my solicitor was with us. And he said to me after the first meeting that in all the years that he'd dealt with people about selling property, he'd never, ever met and had to deal with ruder or more arrogant people that he had on, on those meetings with us. And it's, uh, it's very sad because they've raped the land and they've just wiped out all the ac underground aquifers of water in all the mining areas. None of those are left anymore. Any that are, and if you see them, the edge of the void where the aquifers are, they were getting up on the top of our ridge up there, you could look down on, the, on, the, um, on what was the Valet mine, the Brazilian mine which now Rixus Creek owns, it was like broken water pipes. All that water, beautiful fresh water, was dropping down into the pit. Because the minute it got into the pit, it became contaminated with heavy metals. And so they used to say, oh, well, we, you know, we just put that water on the roads to keep the dust down. And I said to them one day, well, okay, you're putting that water on the road. Now, that's full of heavy metals. Now, when that dries off and the trucks go on it, uh, that goes into the atmosphere. Then you put some more heavy metals on. And then you do it another time. One fellow looked at me and said, nobody's ever thought of that. And I said, well, come on. You know, you're putting that into the atmosphere. 
but it, it's, the, it's the amount of underground water in the driest inhabited continent on Earth that we need every bit of water. And they've been allowed to do that, and I just think it's just so wrong. My father-in-law told me many years ago that during all the bad droughts that they'd had over the years, you know, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, whenever, there was always, there were three dairies on Bowman's Creek. In those days, you were allowed to dig a hole in the gravel and make it deeper and you could put your irrigation plant there. Um, you could always get six hours irrigation on those three pumps every day during the worst drought because there was so much underground water there, it never ran out, it never stopped. Well, they've wrecked all that now, there's nothing, nothing left there. The judge in the Land and Environment Court, it was a really unusual sort of decision. Yes, the mine could go ahead, but they had to own every bit of land within the mine lease area before they could put one spade in the ground. So the mine didn't like that, so they took it to the Court of Appeal, and the three judges in the Court of Appeal agreed with the Land and Environment Court judge. So it's still hanging, but what I'd like to do, now that this damn Yankol, they have now bought out the coal and allied part of Rio Tinto's Under Valley Operations and they're big time over there now. This was only to be a little seven-year mine, which would have ruined the whole of the Camberwell village and taken the mine all the way down. And I just didn't think that it was fair because my southern boundary down there is actually the boundary of that original Bayswater lease that was one of the earliest leases put out in the middle of the 1980s. And I think Yankol knew that, but if they had started here, they would have been able to then keep on going down and wipe out all the farms right the way down. And I just felt that that was wrong and that wouldn't be able to do it. So I would like to go down and get the Premier to just take the lease back and say, well, what's the use of a seven-year mine? when they've got that. And so that's what I'm hoping we might be able to do and just see if that, that works. I just hope it does. I don't suppose anyone receives the Order of Australia for stopping coal mining or coal seam gas on their property, but Wendy Bowman is a hero to people in her region and should be more widely known. She was certainly recognised internationally and she told us that when she went to receive her prize in America, there was an Indian man who would hug her and said, because you are the oldest person to ever receive this prize. She's a real elder and all over the world there are people like her stopping dams and things that disrupt farmland and the fact that she's helped other people become confident in doing that is I think why she received that international recognition so let's celebrate her. Uh, The next person to speak is Bev Smiles who's a hero also of the Mine Watch group and she lives um, near a town called Wollar which we travelled to in our trip and when we camped out at night outside the Wollar Hall. You could see there were hundreds of houses in this little town. There's a primary school, a church, a beautiful old church, and 
many, many buildings there. It used to be perhaps a thriving place and farmland all around. But just up the road, the coal mine is coming. And Bev Smiles, with some others, allegedly went up to uh, stand on the road and she was taken to court and her court case has been adjourned. But we're hoping that uh, she will be able to challenge with the others the rules now that make it very, very difficult to protest. You can face many years in prison as a result of just blocking, trying to block a mine or stop a logging camp or so on. So Bev Smiles is another one of these marvellous people. And here's a tiny bit of what she said to us at Wollar. But they, they, they still do not own everybody in the village. We've got four stalwarts in the village that are holding out. So, so there's only four private properties left, but while they're private properties, the mine has to operate under its conditions for noise and dust and blasting and everything else. So it, it does impede them. But they're still, they're, you know, they're still pushing and prodding and bullying people. And, and with the... Uh, Assessment reports that the government wrote about the impact of this expansion, they admitted that all the decisions made for this mine over a 10-year period had virtually destroyed our community. So it's just this ongoing thing of the mining industry going to government, getting what they want. So the other thing that happened to us, because we were so determined to you know, get our story out there. Um, and some people that are here tonight were with us when we had the Planning and Assessment Commission uh, hearing in um, meeting in Mudgee last April, came back here to the hall, camped as you are tonight, and we went and blockaded the mine um, early the next morning. And with the great support base, three of us got arrested. Yeah. Um, so not only did we get charged with what we expected to get charged with, and that was under the Roads Act blocking the road, again, um, on the request of the mining and gas industry, the government had amended the Crimes Act uh, the previous year and put on some harder um, clauses in that act specifically to do with protesting against mining and gas. So the three of us were the first people in New South Wales to be charged under the new amendments. We left the almost ghost town of Wollar and had a police escort for the rest of the day. I dare say they thought we were going to get off the bus and riot, but we were only there on a listening tour. We continued our way in the Hunter Valley until we came to Bailong Valley. Now, I've interviewed people in Bailong Valley over the years quite a bit, and so far there is no coal mine there. It's exquisitely beautiful, and this was the first time I'd been there. It looks like Switzerland to me, so green, beautiful hills on either side, and very prosperous agriculture there. Um, Bailong is also famous for a property called Tarwin Park, which was owned before by Peter Andrews, who's written many books, including Beyond the Brink, uh, about a kind of new sort of farming to retain the water in the soil and to re, um, stop the fast-flowing creeks that erode so badly and to 
do all sorts of interventions that um, many people around Australia were fascinated by. He was also on Australian Story a couple of times, and people were fascinated by his books and by his ideas. Some of them they thought were controversial, but I think there was also quite a lot of, of copying of this and people taking up Peter Andrews' ideas. Well, Tarwin Park is now guarded by people in high-vis vests. The company that's buying up all the properties in Bylong Valley now owns that property and has their machinery there in the sheds. And I just wondered what is going to happen to all of those improvements that Peter Andrews made over many years to make that property really uh, thrive, to restore good qualities to the soil and to the land. Well, that's now going to be mined. But I somehow can't believe that Bylong will go ahead Please, listeners, remember this name, Bylong Valley. Really, we should have a massive resistance against mining that beautiful place. So here is a farmer, and his name is Peter Grieve. I'm now in the beautiful Bylong Valley, which, if you ask me, should be made a sort of UNESCO heritage place because it's a pristine valley, but it's threatened by a coal mine, which we've heard about on this program before. I think we've had two interviews about it before, and the South Korean company Kepco is buying up a lot of the farms here and planning to open a mine when they get approval. So I have one of the farmers here whose history goes back in this area. His relatives, family has been here for several generations and I'd just like to know a little bit about his farming practice and just his take on the experience. Yes, well we we run a cattle stud, Angus cattle stud. Our uh, policy as far as looking after the land is to try and leave it in a better condition and and the one we found it in, as it were, each generation. That includes things like putting in windbreaks, using uh, non-acid fertilisers, using minimum till cultivation and trying not to overstock the land, although given this last 12 months has been, uh, been a very difficult exercise because we're currently carrying less cattle than we would normally carry and we're still overstocked mm. under the conditions. But, you know, the... That, the weather takes its t- takes its turn, goes round and round, and my my knowledge of the weather here goes back to the 30s, and even further back in, in corporate knowledge, as it were. And we've been through these times before, and we'll be through them again, and that'll be irrespective of global warming or otherwise. But global warming is exacerbating what's happening in the weather situation, and we're seeing uh, the weather coming in big bursts as it were you know you get a, a downpour of rain over a fortnight or six weeks whatever it is then you don't see any for the next three or four months and that's made our climate become very much more unpredictable and that's probably the worst thing we're having to deal with as farmers. The other aspect of climate change is that it changes people's lives and it changes communities and it just rips up people especially our pacific neighbors at the moment are sort of you know being having to evacuate some of the islands so i have a feeling in this coal country it's a little bit like that where people are being bought out and i've interviewed two people i think who've now moved out of this area it must have had a terrible social impact on your feeling of solidarity with you with your family going back generations just tell me if you wouldn't mind for our listeners just how it's been for you and your family well the the valley was a fairly vibrant place, the Bylong shop being the hub of that activity. Um, there was, you know, tennis club and all those sorts of things. Even there was occasional cricket match. Still, the mouse races were a major 
uh, activity here for 25 years. <laughs> and we've just, just run out of people. Well, the mouse yeah. races, races, start again, the mouse races yeah. raised nearly a million dollars for charity over that well, time. So uh, they were very significant activity. And the biggest crowd that came here, I think, was somewhere in the range of 3,000 people. (laughs) And not come out, or if they did come out, you know how fast a mouse moves. They just go... The track was 20 or so feet long. Well, they were in the other end in a twinkling. And I kept saying to them, you know, some people had pet mice bought out of a pet shop. I said, you've got to change this. They've got to all be pet mice. Well, when they got to be all pet mice... Well, stumps still stayed in the box. There'd be much banging on the boxes at the end to get them to go out. And then I, I'll never forget it. There was one, one race where this mouse was well in the lead. And he got to within a, literally, in mouse language, half a metre of the finish line. He stopped and proceeded to preed himself. <laughs> the crowd went ballistic. The noise was deafening. So deafening, and in fact, he decided this was unsafe, and he retreated back from whence he'd come. <laughs> they were the funniest things, the mouse races. They were absolute hoot, and they set it up very well in the end. So lots and lots of people could see the races. And there was three bookies operating, so there was, that's where the main money is to come from. So... You, you get an idea that it was an active and vibrant community. Mm. Today, it's uh, largely inactive. There's mm. nothing much happens here anymore. What's your wildest hope for this valley? Well, from the point of view of this valley, uh, coal mining not taking place would be a good thing. But, mm. but uh, that's all in the hands of government mm. and the proponents of the mine. Okay, for listeners in Victoria, this mine hasn't been approved yet by the New South Wales Government, is that correct? That is correct. They don't have a mining licence at this stage. All right, well, thank you very much. We've been talking to a farm. Would you like to say your name? Uh, Peter Grieve. So we've been talking to Peter here in the Bailong Valley, and I hope if we come back in 10 years' time, he'll still be here and the valley will still be farmed. It'll be quite old by then. I'm very angry, and I'm not usually angry. I'm usually very laid back and easygoing. <laughs> that was the voice of a guide who took us around a part of the country called the Grip. Before, we've been talking about saving farming land, but this is talking about saving the environment. It's a natural environment. It's the most beautiful canyon, and there's water flow from the Goulburn River right through it, and the rocks sort of drip water. It's an inelegant name, I think, the drip, but it's a most beautiful place. And so this little chapter of our story makes us think about preserving nature and natural environments for their own life, for for themselves, not for anything like farming or, you know, just making a profit. It's all about just saving beauty and saving nature. But I was talking with Bev Smiles about what action we would take next. And being an Aries, I'm action-focused. So what action were we going to take next? And the more I thought about it, the more we thought about, yes, we need this all to be national park. Yes, we want to stop the tunnels under the river. We would love to have a miracle happen and the long wall mining never happens, but... That's all been approved. So, and we're fighting to stop more of the salt, well, water, sorry, containing lots of salt and possible nasty toxic waste 
been pumped into the river. So we're fighting that all the time. But what should we do for our next action? And we decided to dream the big dream and ask for the exploration licence that has now lapsed to be denied, which is to the north. Now, any water, just simple layman's terms, I understand that any water to the north that gets then taken by the mines and totally disrupted will deprive the drip of water. Any tunnels under sandstone will destabilise the sandstone. So no water and it's not going to be safe. I'm an ex-schoolie and we can't then bring children, I'm retired now, but the kids that come all the time from the schools from the whole region will probably not be able to come as soon as those cliffs start falling. It won't be safe. We're out in the Hunter Valley at the Drip, which is a famous valley of the Goulburn River. And I'm walking along with James. Oh! <laughs> we fell off the cliff. <laughs> Dramatic radio. I'm with James Whelan, who's from Environmental Justice, and I'm a bit out of puff, but I want to ask him about his vision for coal, post-coal future. And can we just stop while I do my shoelace up? Around Australia, the coal-fired power stations are closing. There hasn't been a new one commissioned or constructed for more than a decade. One or two big ones are closing each year. But we pretend that this isn't happening. We keep mining coal like there's no tomorrow there is a transition happening and our concern is that there's no obligation on the mining companies to be thinking about communities that are disrupted um, as those closures happen and the denial that the change is happening is um, is preventing people who need to be part of that planning mm. from participating in it. Um, that's It's not fair. It's not fair on the communities. Companies will walk away and leave behind devastated communities and devastated environments. We know that. That's how corporations work. And our state governments at the moment and our federal government aren't of a mind to compel them to take responsibility. Now's the time to do that. If it's a a staged, gradual, planned transition, it'll be fairer for everybody. I know climate change is not on everyone's mind. In fact, it's not the main driver for a lot of people. But we've just been through for about an hour seeing new mines and new extensions of old mines and I think it's because the time is right now opportunistically they can now open up the mines that have been in maintenance for a while because the price of coal has gone up recently. Financial predictors like Tim Buckley say look it's on a downward path it might momentarily go up but it's because the world understands about climate change and will stop using the the coal and ultimately the gas. But how can you have a transition when all the people involved, say the workers who are making short-term money out of it, you need them to be thinking about it? How can you engage communities where coal is so much part of their living? It's tough. You know, when people's day-to-day existence relies on an industry that's in such flux, they'll remain wedded to the status quo, of course, uh, protect the status quo. That's human nature, I think. But the momentum's building for for a change. And you know, for instance, the door knocking in Musselbrook just in the last six months has shown that 90% of that community, even folks working in the mining industry, see that a transition's coming. 
believe that it should be planned, believe in and look forward to a diversified economy, I think change will happen faster than any of us expect. What do you imagine in that diversity? Because I've heard people say, oh, diversify Latrobe Valley as well. You know, we'll have to diversify here. But what, what things can you say are feasible? Well, for a start, there's all the um, industries that have been displaced and negatively impacted by the mining industry. You know, in the Hunter Valley, the, the vineyards, many of them have been bought up and closed down by coal mines or displaced by coal mines. The uh, horse breeding industry... Not that I'm a supporter of it, but it's been uh, pushed aside and marginalised and impacted by the mining industry, dairies, cropping, so many industries. So potentially some of those industries could could play a, a bigger part as they have in the past. There's a, an e- economical economist's expression, I think they call it the Dutch economy, where an economy that relies far too heavily on one industry that's not a long-term industry, is vulnerable to collapse. And um, that's the nature of, you know, Quarry Australia. Companies like AGL have made a very strong commitment and and we believe a a genuine commitment to move as rapidly as they can away from coal, recognising that that still may take, uh, you know, a decade, Mm. let's say. But we need to be out of coal by 2030. So that's the post-coal future, cleaning up, diversifying and making that transition consciously and a little bit forced by regulations. And many thanks to all of the people who participated in this show and to Lock the Gate for taking us there. Thank you also to Andy and Roger, who are the team behind this broadcast. Tune in next week to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show at 5pm on Radio 3CR. Thanks for your company. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm going to quickly try and run through and thank everyone that Vivian interviewed tonight, starting with Pat Hansen and Kevin Taggart of the Bulga People, Frank Turnbull, John Cray, Stuart Mitchell, Steve Miss. Steve Phillips and Mrs. Duddy, that was in the first half of the program. Then we went to the Bylong Valley and Vivian spoke to Wendy Bowman, Bev Smiles, Peter Greaves, the Drip Guy, James William. Whelan, sorry, and Nick Clyde. Uh, Vivian asked that we get online and check out timetochoose.org.au. That's with the number two and Lock the Gate Alliance. Uh, thank everyone in the Hunter Valley. Thank Roger and the radio team. And, of course, Vivian Langford for a constant, like, resistance. She'll never stop. It's lovely. Um, she's also asked that you tune in to Four Corners tonight because she thinks it's going to be a very special show. And, yeah, once again, thanks for your company. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR. Till next week, stay tuned. In the Save Albert Park time slot, we've got a radioactive show coming up. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy Zero Emissions Exports and Industry, Zero Emissions Transport, Zero Emissions Buildings and Zero Emissions Land Use.
Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at 